0: It's hard to believe that Christmas is just uh, just around the corner. Uh, I was out with Kelly on Monday and walked into Home Depot, and they already got all their Christmas stuff up. And there's Christmas trees and wreaths, and I'm like, whoa, it's like October. What's the deal here? Um, but it's, it won't be long now, right? But we'll be hearing Christmas music on the radio and in the stores. And uh, you know one of the most popular and beloved songs that we sing around Christmas time is "O Little Town of Bethlehem. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie, above thy deep and dreamless sleep the silent stars go by, yet in thy darkness shineth the everlasting light, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. For Christ is born of Mary and fathered all above, while mortals sleep, the angels keep their watch of wondering love. O morning stars, together proclaim the holy birth, and praises sing to God the King, and peace to men On earth. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. And then the last verse O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings tell. O come to us, abide with us, our Lord. Emmanuel another familiar christmas carol is o come all ye faithful o come all ye faithful joyful and triumphant come ye o come ye to bethlehem come and behold him born the king of angels o come let us adore him o come let us adore him o come let us adore him, come, us adore him christ the lord now based on the new testament we know that jesus was born in the small town of Bethlehem, uh, Luke chapter two, uh, Luke chapter two, verses one through seven. Uh, now, in those days, a decree went forth from Caesar Augustus that a census was to be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone who was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called. Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary and he was who was engaged to him and was with child. And while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Also, in Matthew uh, chapter two, that was Luke chapter two, Matthew chapter two. You remember when the wise men. Uh, two years later, they—they they, we assume that it was about two years later um, because uh, they were in a house now and the child was no longer a baby, an infant, so we assume that this was not, um, you know, right, right at the same time the shepherds were there and everybody else was there. Cute little, makes for a cute manger scene, right? To have your three kings, the three wise men, the three kings, whatever, there, but it probably happened after that. But notice what it says in Matthew chapter 2. Verse 1 Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the peoples, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. "Quote and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." And so the chief uh, priests, there, the priests and the prophets, the scribes, they knew the Old Testament, and they knew that it had been prophesied that the Messiah would be born where, in Bethlehem. Um, how did they know that? Who said that? Who prophesied that? Micah. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. That's what they were quoting there. Interesting, even in the Gospel of John, uh, when the crowds were trying to figure out who in the world Jesus was, in John chapter 7, verse 37. It says, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this uh, he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Some of the people, therefore, even uh, when they heard these words, were saying, This certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, This is the Christ. Still others were saying, Surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. Well, how did they know? How did some in the crowd know that the Scripture said that, that he, the, the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, the city of David? How did they know that? Because of Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And uh, if you haven't looked at that, um, go go there to Micah here, Micah chapter five, uh, verse two. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. In other words, the second member of the Trinity, right, didn't come into being at the incarnation, right? He had existed for all eternity and he was simply incarnated. He took on a body, right, when he was born in Bethlehem. Therefore he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has born a child, then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel and he will rise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God and they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. This one will be our peace. Capital zero, capital, zero, capital O, this one, right? Talking about the Messiah, this one will be our peace. And so God used Micah to deliver one of the clearest and most important prophecies in the whole Old Testament regarding the coming of the Messiah. This was no minor prophecy, right? We're talking about the minor prophets, right? And it's not because what they said was any less important than what the major prophets said. It was simply the length of these short little books. And so this was no minor prophecy, especially when you consider that Micah wrote this 700 years before the birth of Christ, Talk about a prediction, right? Um, now, this single prophecy regarding the birthplace of Jesus is, is probably what Micah is probably best known for. That's why I talk about it right up front, right? What are you, you're looking forward to Christmas, Ken? What's the big deal? Why are you talking about Christmas? Why are you talking about Bethlehem, little little town of Bethlehem? Well, because if, if you don't know anything about Micah, um, whether you realize it or not, right, you know something about Micah. Because you sing it every Christmas, a little town of Bethlehem, and he was the one that prophesied um, and he was the one quoted by the New Testament writers. Um, this is not the only time, by the way, he, he was referenced, Micah's referenced in the New Testament. Jesus, Jesus himself quoted from Micah's prophecy when he was preparing his disciples uh, before he sent them out. Listen to this uh, in Matthew chapter 10, Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through thirty-nine. Matthew chapter ten. This is when he was sending them out two by two uh, to be a witness for him. Uh, chapter ten. Matthew chapter ten, verse thirty-four. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And then he quotes Micah seven six. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the enemies of his own house, be, be the, excuse me, and his man's enemies will be the members of his own household. In other words, sometimes, right, when you become a Christian, um, man it kind of causes division in your family. It causes division Christ causes division in marriages, right? When one of the spouses is a Christian and the other isn't, it, it, it causes division amongst, uh, amongst parents and children. And, and, and brothers and sisters, right? And and in-laws, and and, and daughters-in-laws, and sons-in-laws. And, and, and next thing you know, your enemies are the people in living in your own household, your own family, because of Christ. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it and he was has lost his life for my sake will find it. So Jesus is talking about the cost of Christianity there, and he's quoting from Micah chapter 7, verse 6, where he says, For son treats father contemptuously, daughter rises up against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies are the men of his own household. Now Micah not only prophesied about Jesus' first coming, but he also prophesied about Jesus' second coming, When he'll reign over all the earth. Back in Micah, just listen to this. Micah chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. I will surely assemble all of you, Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel, and I will put them together like sheep in the fold, like a flock in the midst of its pasture. They will be noisy with men. The breaker goes up before them. They break out, pass through the gate, and go out by it. So their king goes on before them and the Lord at their head. This is a reference to Christ's second coming uh, when he will reign uh, over all the earth. Notice um, chapter four, uh, verses one through one through five, and it will and it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and the peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, "Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us about his ways, and that we may walk in his paths." For from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. Then they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. you familiar with that passage probably, right? Where they're, where they're taking um, their, their, um, their, their armament, right? They're disarming basically is what they're doing. In other words, there's peace. There's finally peace on the earth, and so there's complete disarmament. Um, People turning their weapons into into farming tools. Nation will not lift up a sword against nation, and never again will they train for war. Um, Has that happened yet, by the way? (laughs) No, it hasn't happened yet, Um, but it will happen in the future. Each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree, verse 4, with no one to make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken." And so again, this is a prophecy of the second coming of Christ, talking about when Christ comes to reign on all the earth and all the nations of the world come, and, and not just reigning over Israel, but reigning over uh, everyone uh, and, and bringing uh, perfect peace uh, to planet earth during the millennial kingdom. Now, all these passages that I'm reading for you and I'm pointing out to you are, are, are very important but believe it or not, they're not the main point of the book of Micah. That was all for free. Okay? That was all just kind of familiarizing yourself you know, with, with the book of Micah and real, letting you realize you know more about the book of Micah than you probably, probably realize. You say, well, what's the, what's the point of, of the book? I mean, we got this um, series we're talking about, right? The major points of the minor prophets. So what's the major point, the main point uh, of the book of Micah? Well, look at the first verse, Micah 1.1. 1, 1. The word of the Lord which came to Micah of Moresheth. We'll just stop there. The name Micah literally means who is like the Lord. That's what his name meant. Who is like the Lord. In other words, hey, who's like the Lord? Like, There's nobody like the Lord. He's he's incomparable, right? There's nobody like the Lord. That's what his name means. Notice the last um, two verses or three verses, Micah chapter 7. Micah chapter 7, look at verse 18. Who is a God like you? Sound familiar? His name is Micah, who is like the Lord, and he ends his prophecy is, who is a God like you, who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love, He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham, which you swore to our forefathers from the days of old. God called a man named Micah to be a prophet whose name alone in itself would serve as the point of his entire ministry. Hi, my name's Micah. Who is like the Lord? Who is like the Lord? And so God raised up Micah to warn the people of Judah about his impending judgment on them, but also to remind them of his great mercy. That, in while, that while he would punish them for their sin, he would ultimately forgive them. And what does it say? He, he would bury it in the depths of the sea, and he would restore them to their land and provide them a Messiah who would reign over not just the nation of Israel, but the entire world. And the point here is that, that the Jews did not deserve God, God's mercy. They didn't deserve his mercy. Um, but he was merciful to them. He continues to be merciful to them even to this day, and he will be merciful to them in the future. And we know what mercy is, right? We, we, just a simple definition of mercy is, is not getting what you deserve, right? That's mercy, not getting what you deserve. And so what is the theme? What is the main point of Micah? I think it's God's undeserved mercy, God's undeserved mercy. I, you may remember me telling the story uh, years ago with Jacob. I was uh, had a moment of discipline with him, and uh, he had disobeyed. And uh, I had heard somebody do this before, and I thought, I'm going to try this with my kid and see 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 what, see what happens. So anyway, he had disobeyed, and so I said, hey, come with me to the bathroom, and that's where we would... Uh, you know, administer the discipline and the rod, right, and we would spank him in the in the in the bathroom and so we would always sit down and we'd talk through what happened and wh- why were we in the bathroom, and what did daddy have to do and uh you know because of what he had done and and uh and so we were kind of working through that process, and so he admitted that what he did was wrong, he knew he deserved a spanking. And, uh, and so that was normally, I said, okay, buddy, now I'm going to give you two spankings, or I'm going to give you three spankings. I'd tell them how many, and I'd say, okay, put your hands on the counter, and if you know, don't move, uh, and, and it'll be over with. And then I'd hug them, and we you know cry, hug them, make things right, and move on, right? So we got to that point where normally i normally say, okay, now, buddy, I'm going to give you two spankings. So I said, hey, let me ask you a question. Do you want a spanking, or do you want a bowl of ice cream? Kind of looked at me like... What? This is new. I've never heard this before. I said, "Do you want a spanking or do you want a bowl of ice cream?" He goes. He kind of got this little sheepish grin. He goes, "A bowl of ice cream." (laughs) And I said, "Okay, let's go get a bowl of ice cream." I took him in the kitchen, plopped him down on the kitchen table, uh, scooped out some ice cream. He's sitting there eating his ice cream. You know, here comes Zach and Hannah, his older brother and sister, and they're like, "Hey!" They come to Jay. Hey, well, how'd you get the ice cream? And he kind of looked up with this kind of like, "I'm the smartest guy in the room." And he goes, well, Dad asked me if I wanted a spanking or a bowl of ice cream, and I told him I wanted ice cream. And uh, <laughs> so he's eating away, and they're like, hey, can, can, we, can we have some? I'm like, get out of here. I'm trying to teach him a lesson. And I ran them off, and so I sat down with Jacob, and I said, hey, buddy. I said, what did you deserve? A spanking. I said, um, and, and what are you doing right now? Eating ice cream? <laughs> and so basically, you didn't get what you deserved, right? That's what's called mercy, not getting what you deserve. You, got, you had mercy. I had, Daddy had mercy on you, and, and now you're also receiving grace because you're getting what you don't deserve, right? Ice cream is grace, right? It's not just you got off getting a spanking, but you're also getting something else. That's grace. God giving you what you don't deserve. And so just a simple uh, childlike understanding of grace and mercy. Mercy is not getting what we, not getting what we do deserve, and grace is getting what we don't deserve. And uh, if you're a Christian, you've experienced both of those things, Amen. In a very real and powerful way. So, just summarizing the book of Micah here. Then Micah really began with a word of divine retribution against against Israel and Judah, uh, northern, southern kingdoms. Remember that ten tribes north, two tribes south, um, because of the corruption. That was present in every level, on every level in the Jewish culture. There was corrupt rulers, there was false prophets, there was ungodly priests, there was dishonest judges, there was deceptive businessmen, there was oppressive landlords. I mean, it was a mess. And so God's judgment uh, was going to come on Judah in particular, Uh, however... um, It was going to be followed by forgiveness and restoration through the coming of the Messiah. And so his covenant promises, God's covenant promises to Israel, would be fulfilled in the future millennial kingdom. That's basically a summary of the book of Micah. Let me read for you what one other person wrote about this. He said, Micah, quote, prophesied during a period of intense social injustice in Judah. False prophets preached for riches, not for righteousness. Princes thrived on cruelty, violence, and corruption. Priests ministered more for greed than for God. Landlords stole from the poor and evicted widows. Judges lusted after bribes. Businessmen used deceitful scales and weights. Sin had infiltrated every segment of society. Micah enumerated the sins of the nation, sins which will ultimately lead to destruction and captivity. But in the midst of blackness, there is hope. A divine deliverer will appear and righteousness will prevail. Though justice is now trampled underfoot, it will one day triumph. And so, basically, what Mike is saying is there was this complete disregard for for justice and mercy among the Jews, and God would demonstrate both to them. Um, There hasn't been justice There hasn't been mercy. Let me show you what justice looks like. Let me show you what mercy looks like. So let me punish you, right? And then at the same time, right, let me have mercy on you and let me forgive you. Um, The beautiful picture. So you could outline this book. It it breaks up nicely into three sections. Um, Chapters one and two, you could just call punishment. Chapters three through five, you could call promise. In chapter 6 through 7, you could call pardon. And uh, this prophecy really is arranged in, in three oracles or cycles, if you will, each beginning with the word here. I want, I want to show you this, how I broke this down and came up with this outline. Uh, chapter 1, verse 2. "Hear, O peoples, all of you, listen, O earth and all it contains, and that the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from His holy temple. That's the, first, that's the introduction of the first oracle, Uh, Look at chapter 3, verse 1. And I said, Hear now, heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? So again, he says, he he gets them to listen. He's he's getting their attention. Hey, listen up. Uh, And then chapter 6, verse 1, he says it again. Hear now what the Lord is saying. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. And so with each of these three oracles... Micah moved from doom, he starts talking about what's, what, what's going to happen to them is bad, to hope, right? They're doomed because God's people at that point had broken His law uh, that He'd given them at Mount Sinai. But the hope was because He also made some promises uh, to the forefathers of Israel that are unchanging. Um, and, and that's uh, notice, notice um, that, that word unchanging, I think, is key uh, in, in chapter 7. Two times he says it, Um, verse 18, who is God like you who pardons iniquity, passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. Verse 20, you will give truth to Jacob, and unchanging love. So in other words, God's promises to the nation of Israel hadn't changed. And they still haven't changed, even though Israel has been disobedient uh, to their part of the covenant. They haven't kept up their end of the bargain. But if you remember, when God made the original covenant with Abraham, it was a, it was a, it was a one-way covenant. In other words, normally uh, when, when, a, when, when two men would make a covenant with one another in those days, they would cut an animal in half and they'd put one half there and one half here and they would walk together, take turns walking together in a figure eight uh, in, between, you know, in between those and that was the way they covenanted together. Well, if you remember, um, when it was time to covenant with Abraham, God put him to sleep and he, walked, he basically went through that figure eight uh, configuration uh, all by himself. In other words, it was, I'm going to be faithful to this covenant whether you, you are or not. It's like, I don't even need you <laughs> to, to make this covenant with me because I'm going to be faithful to you. Um, powerful, powerful imagery here. So, so again, Micah here is alternating back and forth between retribution and restoration. Very similar uh, pattern in all the other prophecies, all the other prophets Um, both major and minor prophets, there was always a, a, a message of retribution that, watch out, God's judgment is about to fall on you, but God will be faithful to restore you. So the inevitability of God's judgment on Israel is coupled with the immutability of God's promises to bless Israel. So immutability means that God doesn't change, right? So God was equally committed to punishing Israel for their sin as he was to blessing them based on his covenant that he made with them. And so you say, man, God sounds bipolar or something, you know, <laughs> he's punishing him one minute and then he's blessing him the other minute. What's the deal? No, that's God. He, 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 he's a perfect balance of the two things that these people lacked, which was what? Justice and mercy, Right? Those are the two things lacking in that society, and so he wanted to be, they had failed to show justice and mercy to one another, and so God would show them what it looked like and the way that he dealt with them. And so let's just look quickly here at, at, um, at some of Micah, and again, it's seven chapters, it's a, a little long here, so I don't think we'll have a chance to look at everything um, word for word like we were able to do last week with Jonah and we were able to do with Obadiah because it was such a short book. But let's just see, see what we can cover here. Um, again, the first two, uh, first two chapters are all about punishment. Um, back to Micah chapter 1 verse 1, the word of the Lord which came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham. Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. So we're given a lot of background here, even though it's one verse and there are just a few little details, but it's more details than we have gotten from any other of the minor prophets up to this point. So we know where he's from, we know when he ministered, um, and and we know who his contemporaries were and all that kind of stuff. So he was from, uh, Micah was from Moresheth, which was kind of in the foothills of, of Judah, approximately about 25 to 30 miles southwest of Jerusalem on the border of Philistia, which, which we would know today as the Gaza Strip. So it was kind of that area. Uh, he was primarily called to prophesy to Judah, um, the, the kingdom in which he lived, the, the, southern, the two southern tribes of Judah um, and, and her capital, Jerusalem. But he also made some references to the northern kingdom of Israel and her capital, Samaria. Uh, even though his main focus was Judah, he did mention Samaria because basically what he was saying is, hey, Judah, watch what's going to happen to Samaria, watch what's going to happen to Israel, Assyria going to come and whoop up on them, and guess what, the same thing's going to happen to us if we don't repent. So that's why he references them. He was a contemporary of Hosea, Hosea was prophesying to the northern kingdom, and also Isaiah. Uh, in fact, Micah and Isaiah... Um, address the same people, the nation of Judah, the same problems, and uh, some commentators will show all the parallels between Micah and Isaiah, like almost identical verses, and, and so because the style is similar and, and some of the words are almost identical, uh, Micah is considered a miniature Isaiah, uh, or somebody called it Isaiah in shorthand. Uh, I know there's, that's, that's for some of you maybe more seasoned ladies. How's that? I didn't say old ladies. I said seasoned ladies, right? And you remember taking shorthand, right? In the days before a computer, my mom still takes notes of my sermons in shorthand. It's wild. I'm like, mom, what are you writing in tongues? What is that? You know, she's like, she, got, she takes no, sermon notes uh, in shorthand. Um, but it's basically Isaiah in shorthand. So if you ever wanted to know Isaiah, what that's all about, that's like 66 chapters, man. I can't, that's way too many chapters. So just stick with seven of Micah, right? And you got pretty much got the message. Of of I, Isaiah in, in 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 this is the Cliff Notes. How's that? This is the Cliff Notes of uh, of Isaiah. Um, both of their uh, the, the other thing I would say about Micah is is um, what Mi- what Amos was to Israel, Micah was to Judah. If you remember the book of Amos, we looked at that a couple weeks ago. Um, he talked a lot about social injustice, right? and religious corruption. And so they were basically focusing on the same kinds of things. Now, if you wanted to study the historical background, what was going on at the time when Micah prophesied, you can look at 2 Kings uh, 15, chapter 15 to 20. Uh, We don't have time to look at that uh, tonight, but you can write that down, 2 Kings 15 to 20. But let me just read for you how one man summarized uh, just the kind of the historical background. What was going on at the time? The 8th century B.C. was a period of great material prosperity for both Israel and Judah. So we're talking about the 700, 700 B.C. Um, Micah was probably 735 B.C. to 710 B.C., maybe a 20 to 30-year ministry uh, there. Um, again, during those, the reign of those three kings, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, all three kings of Judah. But listen, he describes these three kings. Um, the military success of Jeroboam II in Israel had enlarged the nation's frontiers. Uzziah in Judah had developed the commercial activities of Judah to such a degree that the country was more prosperous than it had been in centuries. A sense of security prevailed in the land. There was peace and no fear of an invader. Um, you remember the, the uh, Isaiah chapter 6 in the year that King Uzziah died, right? So again, the contemporary there. Of, of, uh, of, of Micah. The reign of Uzziah in Judah was followed by Jotham, a good king who followed the principles and practices of his father. Jotham, however, was succeeded by the corrupt Ahaz, who administered corruption for nearly 20 years. This contemptuous monarch was instrumental in introducing the worship of Baal to Judah, making arbitrary changes in the temple and sacrificing children to Molech. In fact, I read somewhere that they said he actually sacrificed one of his own kids to, to Moloch. So here's the king of Israel, king of Judah, right? Supposed to be a godly leader, and he's he's sacrificing his own own kid to to the to the false god of Moloch. His unscrupulous behavior would leave an irreparable scar upon the history of the nation. Hezekiah, the godly king who succeeded Ahaz. "...was responsible for initiating considerable religious reforms, changes which appeared to have precious little effect upon the majority of the Judean population. Something sad had happened to men. People practiced worship formally, but there was little room for practicing righteousness in their lives." In other words, they were going through all the religious motions, right? But it it was making no difference in their everyday lives. Reformation was not accompanied by true repentance and few rendered sincere worship to Jehovah. To quote one writer, morals were low, government was decadent, courts were corrupt, religion was formalistic, and the nation had lost its integrity. Wow, does that sound familiar? That could have been a description of the U.S., right? Um, So that was the the, the state of affairs there in Judah. And so here comes Micah. Micah. you know, it, it, it was time for a prophet, right? This this called the state of Judah called. Uh For a prophet. And this is what he says Micah chapter 1, verse 2. Hear, O peoples, all of you, listen, O earth, and all it contains, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming forth from his place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will be split like wax before the fire, like water poured down a steep place. All this is for the rebellion of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the rebellion of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? What is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? For I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the open country. He's prophesying about the Assyrian uh, demolition of the northern kingdom, planting places for a vineyard. I will pour her stones down into the valley. I will lay lay, lay, lay bare her foundations. All of her idols will be smashed. All of her earnings will be burned with fire. All of her images will make desolate... Uh, I will make desolate, for she collected them from a harlot's earnings, and to the earnings of a harlot they will return. So he's prophesying against Samaria, the northern kingdom. Um, But notice how he also turns now to Judah. Because of this, I must lament and wail. I must go barefoot and naked. I must make a lament like the jackals and a mourning like the ostriches. I mean, you want to talk about a. A guy who must have been a real interesting character, right? Here's Micah saying, hey, I, here I am lamenting and I'm wailing, I'm barefoot, I'm naked, I'm walking around like a jackal, I'm mourning like an ostrich. I mean, this guy, people would be like, what is this guy's problem, right? And we know prophets did some weird things, right? Um, and, but I tell you what, they got people's attention. Um, for her wound is incurable, for it has come, come to Judah... It has reached the gate of my people, even to Jerusalem. Tell it not in Gath. Weep not at all uh, at Beth Lafrol, Roll yourself in the dust. Go on your way, inhabitant of Shaphir, in shameful nakedness. The inhabitant of Zainan. Zanon does not escape the lamentation of Bethazel. He will take from you to, to its it, it, take from you its support. These are all cities or towns um, that he's describing here that are going to be demolished um, uh, ultimately, not by Assyria but by Babylon. Which, by the way, Babylon wasn't even, was just kind of like out there. It wasn't even like a nation. Assyria was still the power, the world power. So for him to prophesy about Babylon, like, what are you talking about? <laughs> are you kidding me? Babylon is like a little pipsqueak little nation over there. Well, you know, they ultimately destroyed Assyria, and then they became the dominant power They came and destroyed Judah. So he goes on and talks about this, um, verse 16. Make yourself bald and cut off your hair because of the children of your delight. Extend your baldness like the eagle, for they will go from you into exile. In other words, you guys are going into exile. You need to shave your heads and start to mourn and and, and repent, basically, what he's saying. Um, What's the cause of the judgment? Notice chapter 2. Woe to those who scheme iniquity, who work out evil on their beds. When morning comes, they do it, for it is in the power of their hands. In other words, they stay awake at night, scheming, making up evil plans. And then the next day, they they live them out. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They rob a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I am planning against this family a calamity, for which you cannot remove your necks. And you will not walk haughtily, for it will be an evil time. In other words, you guys are cocky. You're proud. You're ripping one another off. And uh, you're making plans in your bed. Well, guess what? I got plans of my own what he's saying. On that day, they will take up against you a taunt and utter a bitter lamentation and say, we are completely destroyed. He exchanges the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. The apostate, he apportions our fields. Therefore, you will have no one stretching a measuring line for you by lot in the assembly of the Lord. And he goes off, he just goes on talking about, um, you know, why he was going to judge them. Verse 11, if a man walking after wind and falsehood has told lies and said, I will speak out to you concerning wine and liquor, he would be a spokesman to this people. And then verses 12 and 13, I already read this. In the midst of this judgment that's coming on Judah, notice this promise of restoration. I will surely assemble all of you, Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel I will put them together like sheep in the fold, like a flock in the midst of its pasture. They will be noisy with them. And talks about him becoming their head. So again, just a veiled reference there that, hey, I'm coming down hard on you guys, but right there's going to be a remnant, and I'm going to restore that remnant. So there's hope even in the midst of this, this darkness. So, so that's the, what we said, the punishment. Chapters 1 and 2 is the punishment. Now let's look at the promise here, the, the promise. Again, it, it, it starts with some judgment here where the rulers are are denounced, the princes are denounced. This is chapter 3, verse 1. Hear now, heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice, you who hate good and love evil, who tear off their skin from them and their flesh from their bones, who eat the flesh of my people, strip off their skin from them, break their bones, chop them up for the pot and as meat in a kettle? I mean, this is kind of gruesome language, right? I mean, he's, he's, he's comparing them to cannibals. That's how ruthless... The, the leaders were in Judah. They were, they were taking advantage. I don't think they were literally cannibalizing people, but they, it's as if they were the way they were treating them unjustly. Then they will cry out to the Lord, but He will not answer them. Instead, He will hide His face from them at the time because they have practiced evil deeds. And then He goes on to confront the, the prophets Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray. When they, something, when they have something to bite with their teeth, they cry peace. But against him who puts nothing in their mouths, they declare holy war. In other words, hey, you pay me off. I'll, I'll, prophesy, I'll say whatever you want me to say. <laughs> um. Therefore, it will be night for you without vision, and darkness for you without divination. The sun will go down on the prophets, and the day will become dark over them. The seers will be ashamed, the diviners will be embarrassed, and they will all cover their mouths because there is no answer from God. He's saying the prophets are corrupt. On the other hand, notice what he says about himself, verse 8. On the other hand, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and courage to make known to Jacob his rebellious acts, even to Israel his sin. So all these other knuckleheads, right, they're, they're they're not telling you the right thing. They're lying to you. They're false prophets. I'm telling you the truth. And then again, he tells them about judgment. Now hear this, heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who abhor justice, here there it is again, justice, and twist everything that is straight, who build Zion with bloodshed, and Jerusalem with violent injustice. Her leaders pronounce judgment for a bribe. Her priests instruct for a price, and her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord, saying, is not the Lord in our midst? I'm talking about hypocrisy, right? These guys are in it for the money, and they're like, oh, isn't the Lord in our midst? Right? Calamity will not come on us. Oh, hey, hey, we're fine. We're fine. We're doing what God wants us to do. Therefore, on account of you, Zion will be plowed as a field, Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the temples will become high places of a forest. Then, notice again the hope. Right? I already read this uh, Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 5 is the promise of this coming kingdom. Talking about the millennial kingdom, um, and then chapter same chapter, verse 6, um, he goes back to talking about the captivities, uh, that they were going to be taken captive, so you've got the, again, bouncing back and forth from hope and promises to judgment and doom, um, I'll make of the lame a remnant, verse seven, and the outcast a strong nation. The Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on and forever. As for you, tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it will come. Even the former dominion will come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. And again, just talking about the judgment of God down through verse. Really, chapter 5, verse 1, Now muster yourselves in troops, daughter of troops. They have laid siege against us with a rod. They will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. So get ready. Judgment is coming is basically what he's saying. But in the midst of that, there's a promise. There's promise of the remnant. There's promise of restoration. And then finally, chapter 6 and 7, well, I just kind of breeze through chapter 5 there. Um, let, me, let me say this. I mean, we already read chapter 5, verse 2 through five, which is the promise of the coming king, right? There's the Messiah. And then he talks about how the Messiah is going to be rejected in verses seven um, and following there. And then it talks about the work of Christ. Um, Verse 10, how's this? It will be in that day, declares the Lord, that I will cut off your horses from among you and destroy your chariots. I will also cut off the cities of your land and tear down all your fortifications. I will cut off sorceries from your hand and you'll have fortune tellers no more. I will cut off your carved images and your sacred pillars from among you so that you will no longer bow down to the work of your hands. I'll root out your ashram from among you and destroy your cities ashram where the ashram pulls. Again, false gods, false worship. And I'll execute vengeance and anger and wrath on the nations which have not obeyed. So here's more judgment but more promise. And then again, chapter six and seven is pardon. Pardon. And, and here's God's first plea Um, that he makes to the nation. Notice he says, Arise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Listen, you mountains, to the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundation of the earth because the Lord has a case against his people. Even with the Israel, he will dispute. He says, I'm calling the mountains and the lakes and everything, these inanimate objects, to to, 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 to bear witness against you. My people, what have I done to you, and how have I wearied you? Answer me. Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and ransomed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, counseled, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him, and from Shittim to Gilgal, so that you might know the righteous acts of the Lord. And of course, Balaam was trying to um, prophesy against the nation of Israel, but God wouldn't let him. Verse 6, with what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearly calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? And so they're like, okay, what can we do? We've, we've, we've wronged the Lord. What can we do? do? Can we offer burnt offerings? Can we give calves? Can we even give our own kid? Right? And God says, nope. He has told you, O man, what is good. This is Micah. He has told you, this is verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. That's probably the one verse, if you know any verse in Micah, right? That's probably the one verse you're familiar with. To do justice. What does the Lord require of you? To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. If you don't have the underlined, circled, starred, go ahead and do that now. That's really a key verse. How do we know that this is all about justice and mercy? Well, he says, let me tell you what I want. It's what you haven't been doing. I don't want a cow. I don't want a bull. I don't want your kid. I want you to do justice. I want you to love kindness or mercy. And I want you to walk humbly with your God. That's what I want. Somebody said this about verses 1 through 8 here that Israel had committed the sin of religion. You know what that means? That, hey, let's just be religious, right? Let's just be spiritual, let's be religious. And and, and 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 what is that? He said this: Israel committed the sin of religion, the most subtle of Satan's deceptions, designed to soothe the soul while hardening the heart. Wow! And we know that religion, right? The world's religions—what uh, are they? They're sin. <laughs> they're they're Satan's deceptions. They they soothe your soul. They, they make you think you're okay with God when you're just going through a bunch of motions and a bunch of rituals and traditions, keeping a bunch of trish, uh, traditions here, and they say, I don't want that stuff. I don't want your religious practices and your, your sacrifices and all that stuff. I want you to live justly, mercifully, and humbly. He goes on to appeal to him again there at the end of chapter 6. Or, excuse me. Yeah, the end of chapter six, he makes another appeal, and then just for the sake of time, let's just boogie to chapter seven here. And again, look at the last uh, how how this uh, how, how this all ends. there's a little title in my Bible here over chapter over verse seven seven seven. God is the source of salvation and light. But as for me, I will watch expectantly for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Do not rejoice over me, O my enemy. Though I fall, I will rise. Though I dwell in darkness, the Lord is a light for me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my case and executes justice for me. He will bring me out to the light and I will see his righteousness. I love that In fact, I'll never read that the same again uh, since I heard John Piper one time uh, quote that verse in a conference where he was encouraging young people who may have sensed God's call on their life for ministry and missions and to serve the Lord with their life, but they had sinned in some way or they had some sinful habit pattern in their life, and and they kept falling into that sin, and they felt like they were disqualified, and they could no longer be used of God, and he says, hey guys, listen. this is what the Bible says, right? Do not rejoice over me, O my enemy. In other words, Satan often rejoices, right, when we we fall, flat on our face, flat on our face, we just mess up, big time, we mess up, we blow it, big time, And, and Satan is like throwing a party, right? He's rejoicing over his, ha ha, I got him again, I won. Though I fall, I will what? Rise. Though I dwell in darkness, the Lord is a light for me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I've sinned against him. Listen, I know I got got to deal with the consequences of my sin. It's not like I'm getting off easy, right? I got to deal with the consequences of my sin until he pleads my case and executes justice for me. In other words, I have an advocate with the Father, and that's Jesus Christ who sees at the right hand of God. And he pleads my case. And he says I, says to the Father, I died for that sin. He's forgiven, throw it in the deepest sea, right? Then my enemy will see, he, he, he will bring me out to the light and I will see his righteousness. In other words, he'll bring me out of the darkness, right? the gloom of my sin, and I will see his righteousness and then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? In other words, take that Satan, right? Um, I love this. So if you are finding yourself like flat on your face tonight because you've messed up again in sin, I would encourage you to, 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 to quote this verse. Don't rejoice over me, Satan, right? Yeah, I fell, but I'm going to rise, and yeah, I'll have to deal with the consequences of this sin, but you know what? Ultimately, I have an advocate with the Father, and that's my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? That's encouraging, isn't it? Verse 11, it will be a day for building your walls and the day will your boundary be extended. It will be a day when they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, from Egypt even to Euphrates, even from sea to sea and mountain to mountain and the earth will become desolate because of her inhabitants on account of the fruit of their deeds. Shepherd your people with your scepter, the flock of your possession which dwells by itself in the woodland in the midst of a fruitful field. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. As in the days when you came out from the land of Egypt, I will show you miracles. Nations will see and be ashamed of all their might. They will put their hand on their mouth. Their ears will be deaf. They will lick the dust like a serpent, like reptiles of the earth. They will come trembling out of their fortresses to the Lord our God. They will come in dread and they will be afraid before you. Again, talking about the millennial kingdom, talking about when the Lord returns and all the nations, right, will ultimately Um, be destroyed right who have come against israel will be destroyed and god will reign from jerusalem uh, over all the world and then how does this end who is like who is a god like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession he does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love he'll again have compassion on us you will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham, which you swore to our forefathers from the days of old. Listen, this was written to the nation of Judah, but it is for you. And it's for me. Right? So we understand, right, this is the challenge of Bible study. We have to understand what it meant in its original context, but then we say, okay, how can I live this out? How can I apply it in our context? And what's the encouragement for us tonight? Hey, who is like our God? Who is like our God who pardons our sin? He passes over our rebellion. He doesn't stay angry at us forever. He, He delights in love that never changes. He will again have compassion on us He'll tread our iniquities under his foot. He'll cast our sins into the depths of the sea. Why? Because our God is unchanging in his love for us, right? So God used Micah to confront Judah about how they were, how they were not reflecting the heart and character of their just and merciful God. Hey, who is like your God? He's just, he's merciful, but you're not showing that. Nobody would know that by looking at you guys, and you're supposed to be my light to the Gentiles, right? You're not being that. He wanted his people to show the world what he was like by the way they, they treated each other. And so what God required of his people back then is the same thing he requires of us who are his people today. What does he want? What does the Lord require of us? He wants us to act justly. He wants us to show mercy. And he wants us to live humbly. Act justly, show mercy, and live humbly. Notice he didn't say, what does the Lord require of you? Read your Bible and pray. Didn't say that. Didn't say, the Lord requires you to come to church that you disciple people, that you give sacrificially, joyfully. These are all things, by the way, that the Lord requires of us, right? They're all good things. But in this context, what what God is talking about here is, is the fact that He's called us to be salt and light. He called the nation of Israel to be salt and light in that pagan world with all those polytheist nations, those pagan nations, So he's called us to be salt and light in our homes, in our community, in our neighborhoods, in our businesses, in our schools. And listen, we don't do that. You're not salt and light by having your quiet time. You're not salt and light by attending church and fellowshipping with other believers. How are you salt and light in the community? We do it by treating others fairly, by treating them graciously, and by treating them humbly. Right? That's how how we're a witness. We act justly. We show mercy. We're gracious, right? And we just live humble. We're just humble. That's how you witness for Christ, right? So, how are you doing in that? Are you acting? Do you, do you act fairly? I mean, are you a fair person? Or are you ripping people off, right? Um, how about are you, are, do you show mercy? In other words, are you gracious to people? Do you give people what they deserve? That person doesn't deserve my respect because of what they did, so I'm not going to give it to them. Or do you give them what they don't deserve, right? You're gracious to them, right? And are you humble? Are you living humbly? Let me close with this. Somebody said it this way about Jesus, right? Where where is Jesus in all this? Well, we've seen the prophecy obviously of his birth, but this is really good. The fuzzy pictures of Micah's prophecies come to a multi-pixel resolution in Jesus Christ. Jesus came to bear fully the judgment for human injustice and mercilessness. Jesus bears our judgment so that we can experience God's mercy. After laying the foundation of justice, our merciful shepherd returned to the Father until a future time when the restoration of his actions that he initiated will be fully realized. Until then, he has sent his spirit to indwell us and guide us so that the divine justice and mercy we have experienced will begin to leak out all over our human experience. In other words, it's, it's be kind. Tenderhearted, forgiving one another just, in God, just as God in Christ has forgiven you, right? I mean, if you've been forgiven, right, how can you not forgive others? That's this point. It just begins to leak out. As we rely on his spirit to do this, we will be becoming more like our Lord himself and more like what he intended his human creatures to look like as we try to imitate his justice and mercy in our daily circumstances. So that's the I think that's the message that's the point is that we again need to do justly, act justly, show mercy and live humbly. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for uh, Micah. A book of the Bible that we're not that familiar with, but Lord, there's great messages here great points for us, great application for us, great implications for us. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to learn from the nation of Judah, uh, that we would not be those who act unjustly, those who are merciless in the way we, we interact with others. Lord, I pray that we would be quick to, to, to do the right thing and to be gracious and merciful to others. And that you, Lord, you just help us just be humble. And ultimately, no, Jesus was all those things. And so this is really another way of saying we need to be more like Jesus. And so would you help us by the spirit that you've put in us? Uh, In the meantime, while we're waiting for Jesus to return, uh, I pray that you would help us to, to, to become these things. For your glory we pray that we might be a light for you in this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.